Welcome to this episode of the Business of Practice podcast, where we focus on the financial and human sides of equine veterinary medicine. In this episode, Amy Grice, VMD MBA, is going to talk to us about teaching owners to keep veterinarians safe. Dr. Grice was an equine practitioner for more than 20 years before starting veterinary business consulting. She advises veterinarians and practice owners on a wide variety of projects and challenges, and she's the current AAEP treasurer. The Business of Practice podcast is brought to you by Care Credit. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Grice. Thank you. It's good to be back. Yeah, and we always appreciate it when you come. And I know this might seem to our audience to be a little bit of a strange business topic, but if a veterinarian gets hurt, she or he cannot serve anyone. So, you know, for veterinarians, if, if you aren't available, then your owners might not have options for care in your area. You might be the go-to or the only person. So first, I want to kind of talk about that a little bit. There, there is a dearth of equine veterinarians available. So it's kind of our responsibility to make sure that we're saying no sometimes to some clients and horses until the horses have better manners. So tell us, about, let's talk a little about the dearth of, of veterinarians. Well, you know, in the equine veterinary industry, we are experiencing a lack of new blood coming into the profession. Um, This in part stems from the fact that uh, the salaries that are being offered in companion animal practice are quite high, including some really good benefits, a minimal uh, on-call responsibility, and, and less work hours. Um, And so even those that absolutely love equine practice and always dreamed of being in it, they look at their student loan debt from veterinary school, which for those that have loans averages, oh, in 2020, $188,000, you know, and that's the average. So there's people that have more than that. And, you know, especially if they're raising a family, they feel some responsibility to take the job that pays more and gives them more time with their family. So with that lack of people coming into the profession, we are getting pretty, um, you know, stretched pretty thin. So I agree with you. It's super important that we keep the ones in the trenches, you know, uninjured, safe, healthy. And that can be delicate. I mean, I was actually talking to my farrier yesterday, and sometimes I think they have it worse than veterinarians. But there are some horses and horse owners who just don't recognize their responsibility. So what is the responsibility of the owner when your veterinarian comes? Well, you know, it's so true that the veterinary profession and also, you know, blacksmithing and farrier uh, are are dangerous professions. The study by the British Equine Veterinary Association a few years ago uh, called equine veterinary medicine the most dangerous civilian occupation. Um, and it, it was kind of a scary study because the most likelihood of getting injured was when the owner of the horse was holding the horse or restraining the horse. And so, you know, the responsibility of the owner is to have a horse that 
you know, is responsive to uh, cues so that their halter broke, that they're not um, hugely reactive to things, that they're kind of sacked out, if you want to use a, a Western term that, you know, because having a veterinarian come is scary. Veterinarians, because of biosecurity issues, they wash their hands with, and their equipment with disinfectants, and those do not smell like somebody friendly. You know, they don't smell like their normal owner or their barn worker. And so one of the things that owners often don't realize is the level of anxiety that having this weirdly smelly person being close to their prey animal, their prey animal that knows that the way to safety is to run away. And if they're cornered, it's to kick or bite or take aggressive action to run away. And owners often don't understand that. And, you know, they even sometimes say, well, he never acts like this for Dr. Jones. Well, Dr. Jones, you know, may be from um, an entirely different sort of era where the things that were being done were a little less, um, perhaps a little less traumatic. I'd, I'm not quite sure how that all happens. Or the horse has just gotten used to Dr. Jones over 20 years or what? Right, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So, okay. So, what you initially were talking about is ground manners. I mean, respecting mm-hmm. the handler and standing still and things like that. Because it's very easy, especially if a veterinarian is paying more attention to the, the cues of what the clinical signs are of the horse than the behavior signs. And sometimes that happens. You're concentrating on a heart rate or on palpation and your brain is focused there. And you might not be watching that the horse has suddenly put its ears back and raised a leg or something. Right. It is one of the most effective ways to stay safe is to have a veterinary assistant. You know, over the last decade or more, 35 to 40% every single year of AAEP members are solo practitioners. Of those, 16% have no employees. So they're depending on the owners or a barn worker to hold the horse. But assistance can make so much of a difference. And part of that is because horses sometimes are used to pushing their owner around. And they're used to their owner being below them on the pecking order, perhaps even. Um, I remember having owners that were a little scared of their horses when the vet came and they'd get a bucket of grain and say, well, I'll just feed him grain while you're, you know, and I'd say, oh, dear, (laughs) I think my assistant will hold him. And, And many times when the assistant is holding the horse is a little bit uncertain of what the pecking order is. And this person is telling them in no uncertain terms, you're going to stand still. And they do. So an assistant also is very aware of what the veterinarian is going to be doing and when the potential discomfort is going to happen and what the um, flow of events is going to be. So they understand what's going to happen next. It can be helpful for a veterinarian if they're with an owner holding a horse to tell the owner exactly what the flow of events is and to say, okay, we're going to do the nerve block now and I'm going to need to stick this tiny little needle 
in the back of his pastern right above his foot. I'm going to count to three. That's when he might jump, you know, so that the owner has some kind of idea what's going to happen. They don't want their veterinarian to get hurt. But unfortunately, time and time again, they say, oh, he's fine. He won't. He, you know, my my two year old can, you know, play with his tail and run around his legs and nothing happens. (laughs) But that's different than having the veterinarian there, which brings up another topic. Safety in the barn. It is so incredibly important to corral the young children. The young children that might suddenly appear riding a bike down the barn aisle or throw a football from one end of the aisle to the other, or even just a toddler that suddenly like tips over there. Maybe they brought the stroller out and the toddler's reaching for something and tips over the stroller. The children really need to be um, corralled. You know, it wouldn't really be child abuse to lock them in a stall for a short amount of time. Um, And with older children who want to watch, that want to be veterinarians, Um, You know, sometimes the veterinarian can engage them and say, you can stay and watch, but only if you sit on that hay bale over there. The minute I see you move, you won't be able to watch anymore. So corralling the children, the bicycles and the dogs. The dogs can also be a problem. Um, You know, often if they're barn dogs, they're really, really good. But if somebody arrives suddenly and six or seven dogs um, leave the tack room where they're hanging out on their beds and go racing down the aisle barking because they're going to eat the UPS man. Yeah. um, Usually that's a little hard (laughs) for, for the veterinarian working on the horse. So animals, young children, um, other dangerous stuff. Having an aisle that has things where if the horse does react and and is going to back up or suddenly go sideways, that he doesn't get speared with a pitchfork or run into the the twirling, you know, blades of a manure spreader or, you know, there's so many things that you can have around a barn aisle that they can get hurt on. It's just crazy. And, And most veterinarians, they think ahead. They look around because they want to keep themselves safe. They want to keep their assistant safe. They want to keep the horse safe and everybody else around them. So they typically check out the surroundings. Sometimes you're choosing the least offensive place of, of, you know, of a very unsafe environment. And what are you going to do? It's hard sometimes. Um, uh, Another thing that's, in the dangerous stuff category is um, owners that are holding the horse that they trust implicitly. So they're talking on their cell phone or they're scrolling Facebook or they're texting their friend or they're taking pictures of you. All of those things mean that their hands are on their phone, that they're not watching the horse and that they're not looking out for your safety. So you may have to have a a very strict conversation and say, this is a boundary for me. And if your attention is going to be otherwise, I'm going to stop working. And if it happens a second time, I'll be leaving the barn. Along with safety, don't allow 
the person holding the horse to wear flip-flops or be barefoot because if the horse moves and steps on their bare foot, their flip-flopped foot, and now has broken toes and a giant laceration, um, A, they're not going to be holding the horse, and B, now you have to pay attention to them, and C, the veterinarian who is at an ambulatory call has some liability for every single thing that happens. So if that child on the bike gets double-barreled by the horse that you're working on, the veterinarian could get sued. And in a court of law, when you're looking at a jury trial with a, with a child with a head injury that's going to need care for the rest of their life, guess what's going to happen? Yeah. They're going to go after the person who they think is rich. So it's not just keeping you safe in a physical sense. It's keeping you safe in many other senses. The Business of Practice podcast is brought to you by Care Credit. Care Credit keeps equine veterinarians at the heart of care by providing horse owners with simple, budget-friendly financing options. By bridging the gap between cost and care, Care Credit supports healthy financial relationships between veterinarians and their clients. It can help them move forward with care a horse needs whenever and wherever it's needed. Again, the my, it was, and it was my farrier, not my vet, but the farrier was late because he said he had some difficult horses and said the owner was like, well, you just need to take some more time and, and train the horse to what you're doing. And he said, no, that's your job, not my job. Um, I will charge you extra if you want me to train your horse, but you need to bring it to my place and I will train it. So, I mean, veterinarians sometimes are going to have to say, I'm not being paid to train your horse and you, you need some professional help. You know, it, it is true. Um, and we do, in certain instances, go ahead and, and train horses a little bit, especially needle-shy horses. Yeah. You can desensitize them over time. And sometimes we go ahead and do that. And, and there are techniques that, that are not quite as uh, lengthy of time as other techniques, you know, like pressing your fingernail into their neck in the dermatome where you're going to vaccinate them and just stand there idly chatting with the owner, pressing your fingernail in that dermatome over and over. And then one of those times you actually vaccinate them. Or you do the cookie trick where... You know, you've perhaps done the desensitization with your fingernail, but they're still kind of weird about it. You can have the owner have a cookie, you know, a horse treater or something, carrot, that the horse knows is there. And you say, okay, I'm going to count to three, feed the cookie on three. That's when I'm going to give him the vaccination or the injection or whatever the needle is. One, two, three, feed the cookie, and the horse's attention is somewhere else. So that's in a way, training the horse. But there is no way that you should be halter-breaking horses or um, spending large amounts of time. It is not your job. I do have to say that there are associates that in some, uh, in some practices that they feel uncomfortable with saying no. They feel uncomfortable with saying, you know, um, I 
don't feel comfortable with this situation because they may feel like their um, their caution, their fear is something that will be looked upon with um, horror and you know, disapproval by their boss. And, you know, early on in my career, man, I was a cowgirl. I remember trying to catch a horse that was whirling in a stall, a broodmare. She was just whirling, wouldn't be caught. And I, my assistant was trying to caught her, catch her. And I got irritated. And I said, get out of there, I'll get her. And I went in the stall and as she came around, I reached out with my left arm and I grabbed her halter and I didn't let go. And she came to a, and my shoulder went boingy boingy and the horse stopped. We did the work. And two weeks later, I was doing something, lifting that arm above my head to do something. And I was like, ow. And I, I had injured my shoulder. I then had a frozen shoulder. I had to get it injected, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it's great to be a cowgirl, but what if you do that? And instead of the grabbing for the halter, instead of that, the horse whirls and double barrels you, ruptures your spleen, and you're a solo practitioner. What are you going to do? Or you're that associate, and now you're out of work. So, you know, you do have to think about how you're feeling about the situation. There's always sedation. You know, there's, there's always walking away. <laughs> I love that. I, I want to say that again. Say it again. Always sedation. You can always walk away. That's right. There's always sedation and you can always walk away. And it's not a competition to see who can treat the horse with the least amount of restraint and not get hurt. You know, it could be like a, a terrible uh, dystopian game show. <laughs> Gosh, that's awful. Yeah, I, I have seen lots. I was when, when I worked on a thoroughbred farm early in my career, I always had to go around with the vet because I understood my job. Didn't matter what the price tag on the horse was. My job was to keep the vet safe and the vet do that. Mm -hmm. And they were like, you know, the other guys that would sit there and, of course, that was before cell phones and piddle around and not pay attention or play with the pole while you're trying to, you know, palp the mare. And it was, yeah, they they quickly learned who was there for them. So Mm -hmm. that's that's need to take charge of saying those things. Right. And that is very, very true that um, if you do not have an assistant, you are responsible for your own safety and you have to set the boundaries, the guardrails. You have to set the tone for the visit when you get there. You, you know, sometimes you want to say to the client, I'm depending on you to keep me safe. I remember seeing a colic and I had put on my hickory stick twitch. It was an Appaloosa, not saying anything bad about the breed, but this particular one was a little reactive and I was tubing her. She, you could see that she was not super happy, but um, as the tube is coming out, it had what? Nine, 10 inches to come out of her nose still. And she reared and struck And the owner let go of the twitch, which came around like a baseball bat and hit me in the eye socket. 
So, you know, having that um, conversation at the beginning, this is what could happen. This is what I want you to do. If X, Y, or Z happens, tell them how to stay safe themselves. Tell them, you know, yeah, you really are. Um, you have to be responsible uh, for setting up the safest situation that you can. And also for veterinarians, the, the distraction thing is the same. I mean, veterinarians can get distracted by somebody coming up and asking questions or, you know, like you said, the dogs going, you know, six dogs barreling out of the tack room to go mm -hmm. greet the UPS guy. Veterinarians can get distracted and sometimes that's hard. It is really hard. Um, I think the thing that was always the most distracting for me was when people were asking me questions while I was trying to do something that took a little more of my attention, um, you know, say suturing a wound or, or examining uh, some injury, or even, like you said, I'm trying to listen <laughs> Listen to the lungs, and and I have this stethoscope in. Somebody's talking to me, asking me questions. So, you know, then you have to say, um, as soon as I'm finished with the exam, um, I'll answer your questions. It's like again, just take control of the situation and let them know that you will answer their questions. You just can't do it right now. It also is so distracting if you're on call. So you're. It's a weekend. It's emergencies. And your phone or your pager in the old days, your phone keeps blowing up and it's one emergency after another and you're starting to get a little flustered. Um, so, yes, veterinarians do get distracted, especially when the distractions are causing them stress. Um, and most of the time, taking a deep breath um, and just telling the uh, the client what's going on. You look at your phone, it's the answering service. You might say, I need to find out what's going on. I'm, you know, I'm going to step around the corner here and I'll be right back or whatever. So, I mean, you were talking earlier and, and we've, we've all seen needle shy horses. And when I, when I first got a miniature donkey, that was the first thing my vet, she said, okay, here's what I want you to do to this miniature donkey about, you know, six times a day to go out and you know, get her used to these things. I want her to, you know, get, take a ballpoint pen or whatever her technique was and go out there and poke on her and, you know, reward her and love on her, but poke on her and do it hard, mm -hmm. you know, make her feel it because donkey skins are really thick. And she was saying, I want to be able to pick up her feet without her, you know, resisting me. I want to be able to look in her mouth. I want to be able to take a rectal temperature, you know, mm -hmm. because at, you know, it's, Donkeys were different. I was used to horses. And so she was teaching me when I first got this, this is what I need you to do as an owner. So I think veterinarians don't take that time sometimes. Right. And, you know, along with donkeys, I would put in the same category, uh, miniature horses, because they're so small, they, they definitely have some defensiveness. Um, a lot of them will go up in the air and wave their front feet in your face, you know, even, I mean, you haven't even done anything yet. Um, and so there, there also really, really helps them to have regular handling. The people that own those two species, because they're not riders, they often have very little experience with equines. And so um, putting them in touch with um, 
you know, maybe groups or folks that um, can familiarize them with appropriate handling so that they can start to, uh, you know, do those things regularly with their with their small uh, equine species uh, will help a lot. Yeah, we actually over on the business, I'm sorry, over on the disease du jour podcast that we do for management, we talked to Dr. Amy McLean, who is a donkey and mule uh, researcher and owner and travels around the world working with working equids. And she was talking to veterinarians and, and vet assistants on how to deal with horses and donkeys because they they are different. So mules, you know, mules are yeah. mules are very um very reactive to veterinary uh attention sometimes. And you can stand in front of their shoulder, like up by their neck, and they can still roundhouse you with a hind foot like lightning and, and like break your leg, take out your kneecap. It's they can be really scary for veterinarians. Yeah, so, uh, we'll, we'll do a little cross pollination here and and say if you haven't listened to the disease to sure we just posted it on uh, veterinarians working with mules and donkeys, especially uh, I found out the other day from a couple of my veterinarian friends that in the English Sport Horse Society on the East Coast, the big new thing is to get miniature donkeys to have as pets. And again, even if you're a horse rider, mules and donkeys is different. So, yes, you know, that's, I, I highly recommend that you get to know the behaviors of them, because if you if you can't. And, you know, get near them and work with them. If you don't understand them, you'll never be able to treat them. You, you that's a great idea. Yeah. So anyway, that's a little cross-pollination here. But yeah. So I also want to talk a little bit about keeping veterinarians safe. And again, physically and financially, um, uh, keeping owners, veterinarians keeping, I'm sorry, owners keeping veterinarians safe can also mean keeping them in business financially. And I know that seems a little weird and off the topic, but if you're a horse owner and you're like me, it is difficult to find, you know, veterinary care. They Most of the time you're hauling horses to get things done. And if you're not now, get ready because you're going to have to. So the more that we can financially protect our veterinarians and keep them safe and in business, so I, I'm, I'm taking at this from a little different angle. So what would you say about horse owners keeping veterinarians financially safe to keep them in practice? That's a really good point. I mean, one thing for sure is that as practices are moving to payment at the time of service, um, it, I would suggest that clients um, get those bills paid right away and um, not complain about prices. Uh, prices for veterinary goods have gone up substantially. Gasoline prices have gone up substantially. And equine veterinarians do not make the salaries that, that are offered in companion animal veterinary medicine. And so it can be very hard if not only are veterinarians um, making less money, but they're also being... Uh, basically assaulted by complaints all day long and people feeling like they don't get there fast enough and they can't get 
them to, you know, come on a Sunday for a routine call, like the, the cacophony of dis, disgruntlement um, starts to weigh on them. And that's how we lose some of them. One of the things that uh, has happened recently in California is the California board has gone after some equine veterinarians for some uh, ways that we normally practice um, using using uh, medications in an off-label manner, uh, like uh, gentamicin, which is a very common antibiotic that is used, is only labeled for use in a horse's uterus. And it's commonly used both intramuscularly and intravenously, but it's not labeled that way. And they have been going after veterinarians for um, lack of appropriate medical records uh, in dispensing medications like Adequan. Um, so I think there are there are some things happening on a regulatory level where uh, state boards are using companion animal uh, kind of uh, ways of practice, standard of practice, and applying it to the equine practice world, which is just impossible to do. So horse owners may be facing a double whammy because you can imagine if you are working 60, 70 hours a week, you're making less money because you're working on horses. You love your life, but now the regulatory people are are going to take away your license for practicing normally. Um, so horse owners have that threat as well. Um, and so they may need to make their voices heard. This was happening in California to a previous AAEP president, Dr. Blea, who uh, is a wonderful veterinarian and did only what other equine veterinarians do every day. So horse owners may need to investigate this and make their voices heard. Yeah, and that's a great point. And I think, uh, again, I'm going to tout a little something different here in our podcast, but Dr. Bryce wrote, she did a survey. We did a survey of horse owners, of, you know, over a thousand horse owners. And she took those results. She helped craft the questions. But then the survey was to give veterinarians the horse owners' responses to what they think about veterinary services. And it was a little enlightening. There are still some fairly entitled horse owners out there. But there are a lot that are starting to get the picture that, hey, if I don't protect my veterinarian physically and financially, I might not have one. That's right. And. You know, I was really um, in reading comments in that survey. My heart was filled up with the people that really um, sung their veterinarians' praises and talked about the ways that they are trying to support them emotionally, physically, financially, you know, just keep them available because they value them so highly. You know, unfortunately, there were those who just, really didn't understand the industry and they had a, a pretty high sense of entitlement as though as though veterinary services for horses were something that was um, they got to get because they had one like damn it why aren't there services available for me there should be 
<laughs> like, <Yeah>. really? <laughs> Only if someone wants to start a business providing them there. Yeah, and that's it's a little, a little scary. So I, I recommend everyone read Dr. Grice's uh, article in in Equimanagement magazine, and we will post it up on Equimanagement.com. Uh, shortly, we'll have the entire magazine up there probably in the next week or two. So you can go even read it online on equimanagement.com. But yeah, that was that was a, a pretty enlightening view of horse owners understanding of the veterinary industry today. And it did talk about, you know, again, how owners can support veterinarians and veterinarians need to train their owners to do that. I agree. <clears throat> we have to be part of the conversation and we have to take responsibility for shaping the industry. Well, is there anything else that you uh, want to say, Dr. Grace, about horse owners keeping veterinarians safe? Well, I, I think that a lot of, since we don't have horse owners listening on this call, um, from the veterinarian's point of view, I think that that uh, transparent, open, early conversation, setting expectations, setting boundaries, um, and when people cross boundaries that you speak up, you just calmly and understand that uh, your safety is so incredibly important. Horses are big, they're dangerous. And in one split second, you could lose your capacity to work, whether that's for weeks, months, or even with a lifetime disability. So don't take it lightly. Stay safe out there. And on that, I think that's a great place to stop this. So thank you very much, Dr. Grice, for joining us on the Business of Practice. And a big thanks to our sponsor, Care Credit, for allowing us to get together and talk about these types of uh, topics. And again, you can visit equimanagement.com or any of your favorite podcast networks to listen to the Business of Practice. And we run an article and we have a, a player right on equimanagement.com if you're more comfortable going there and just listening to it. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can send an email to me at kbrown, that's the letter, kbrown at equinenetwork.com. The Business of Practice is production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC. 